people are scared to bring up really important work that we have to do because it doesn't fit anywhere on the schedule. There's no part of the roadmap that includes that. That is a travesty. You have some of the hopefully best developers out there. They discover that there's something else they need to do. And now they're trying to fight with the roadmap to put in critical work so that you can achieve the value. Welcome back everybody to Building Better Games, Roadmapping and Project Planning. These are topics we feel immense frustration toward, yet somehow are always the thing we think we need to do better at. Why is we need to plan better a typical response to problems that come up? Why is it so hard to incorporate the reality and uncertainty of game development into a roadmap or plan? Why are we so often cynical about our current roadmap and whether we can predict when we will finish the product or project. And what are the problems with how we do roadmapping and planning today? What would building a reliable, consistent, and collaborative roadmap actually look like? Join us as we do a deep dive into these questions. We will give you the tools you need to build more effective plans for your teams so that you can build better games. Ah, so near and dear to my heart, the idea of roadmapping. Just... It's the origin point for me in this one is somebody comes to you and they're in a position of authority, they're a stakeholder or whatever, and the project's in some state, be at the beginning, the end, whatever, and they're like, can you show me the roadmap? Hey, when are you going to be done? All these sorts of things. Or like, we're doing roadmapping. We want to see where your team fits into it. I've both asked those questions and I've had to answer them. I feel like every single person in game development, every leader especially that's ever led a team, or a discipline in game development has interacted with the roadmap yes. at some point and certainly has had enough exposure to probably have a bit of cynicism about how they're typically used. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to go into right off the bat is talking about a couple of the primary themes we see in the misuse and misunderstanding of the application of planning tools like roadmaps. Like the more we started thinking about the roadmap, the less clear it became what the roadmap actually was. There's probably some broad strokes that most people can relate to around the shape of a roadmap. And the thing that I think most people struggle to relate to around a roadmap is why do we actually have it besides, well, we need a plan. Yep. Which, by the way, is a legitimate request of a team or a project or a game. It's like, hey, what's the plan for this? Like, that's, that's not unreasonable all by itself but it often leads to these documents and then they just, we just get really into like the specifics and nuances of a particular roadmap format and have all sorts of wants and desires and dislikes and likes. And it's like, wait, do we remember why we want this? Do we remember why we want the plan and how this fits into it? It's just really important to understand why we want the damn thing in the first place, because I want to make sure that the thing that I make is actually useful to the team. Yes. So, you know, when we start talking about planning and roadmaps, let's first talk about what it is that we need. A practical example of this, I will talk about a little bit more later, is like, where are your stakeholders at? Are they upset about the project right now? Do they already feel like it's behind? Is there any agreement on how many people are actually on the team or when you started or what the scope is? Like, is does anyone know any of this stuff or like, are people already pissed? Because if depending on what the answers to all those little micro questions I asked were, I might take a different approach yeah. to collecting the data and raising visibility on it, right? 
another thing is, is like, oftentimes the audience for the roadmap isn't clear. Yes. Like I'm a firm believer that a good roadmap should have the team in mind as part of its audience, right? So the team should be able to look at the thing that you make leader and go, yes, that feels like an accurate representation of where our team is at and what we're focused on and what we're doing and when we think it's going to get done. Right. If they're completely divorced from that thing you've made, or even worse, they see the thing you've made in passing and they go, that's totally wrong. You have a huge problem on your hands. So yes, this is not just about like tinkering around with some math and estimates and putting yep. them on a spreadsheet. This is about yep. way more than that. And that's what this podcast is about. So there's, there is value in having a roadmap. And we, I think we often miss it because the way we treat the roadmap is, well, we did an exercise that we call planning. And it took somewhere between hours to days to weeks, maybe even months in some cases, to finish all the planning. At the end of that planning process, we produced a giant document that said how the next two years of work is going to go. For sure. This is one of the most common use cases that we see roadmaps referred to. People are like, well, let's go check out the roadmap. And, and it's one of the worst because often there's an assumption that the future is going to somehow look like that thing we put together. Well, now the planning is done and here is the map that shows us where we're going to go in the next two years. Yeah. And I think that you all are aware that there is uncertainty in the environment. And you're actually yes. all aware that when that uncertainty is not incorporated into the roadmap, the roadmap goes off the rails really quickly. So why do we keep ending up in a place where that happens? Let's talk about these sort of like five key areas, because mm -hmm. as I think about these five key areas, I really do see a lot that is often not incorporated. Uh -huh. into the process. And the first one is the idea of regularly updating and iterating the on the roadmap and on the plan itself. Like it yep. should flow and flex with the reality as it changes. And that's that right there is going to address a lot of the problems that come up with roadmaps. If you much more often confronted the reality and how it differed from your plan and made small updates to it and projected those out, maybe there's Maybe there is a big roadmap somewhere in a mural board or on a whiteboard if you're in an office or something, and it's sitting there and we're constantly updating and removing things and we're seeing how that cascades and what that does to the long pole and all these different things. If you're doing that regularly, it allows you to more rapidly reach the place of making the decision that, oh, shoot, we need to cut this. We need to limit the scope of this feature. We might not get through all of these things. How will we make this work anyway? And you're going to have earlier and better conversations because you're not going to be as panicked. And especially in fixed date projects, this becomes important because when you start seeing stuff basically crossing the line of the deadline that's really important to get done, you will be able to say, okay, hey, something just crossed the line of it's no, no longer going to get done before our deadline. And that's a really important thing. What are we going to do about that right now? Knowing that eight months out is way better than pretending we're sort of quasi following the plan and are going to catch up. And then two months before that deadline, realizing, ah, shoot, we're not getting everything done. 
This is, I think, one of the many origins of crunch in our industry. And it's this idea of, well, maybe if we all just worked harder, we can get more done. And it, it doesn't work, certainly not for any significant length of time. You can do it for short bursts, but it comes at great cost. So if you build regular updates and iterations where, hey, cool, I want you to be changing your plan to match reality and then projecting that out. Don't hide it in a corner, right? Like you're, you know, you're the producer on a team and the, the overall reality no longer matches the overall plan. So you just change it in your corner and don't tell anyone. No, project it out. Say, hey, this is what we're looking at now. Hey, here's the things that look like they're now suddenly at risk. I think that if you do that regularly and you keep a group informed on that, and by the way, this works in silos, discipline siloed structures as well keeping each other informed about how we're doing, who's ahead, who's not. Because if one discipline's doing great, you know, animation is just rolling through everything. They're well on track and everything like that. They're going to start becoming annoyed if they discover at the last minute that there's another team that isn't on track. And now the animators are starting to run out of work to do. If I knew that well in advance, I can start actually planning, well, what do we want to do with the spare bandwidth we're going to have? Do we polish existing animations? Do we add a little bit more depth? all sorts of things like you can do with that yeah. time and space. So there's this question here, which is how do you not just surface data at the front of the planning process, but surface data throughout uh -huh. the project lifecycle and then incorporate that data back into your plan, update your plan, and then ideally have a conversation around it on a regular basis with all relevant individuals. Yep. This is how you build iteration into this. Do not just make a monolithic plan and then let it sit and collect dust, update it with the new information you have. Yes. The second key area that's the most important stuff that will get in the way of you actually making accurate projections. And the things that we're talking about in this bucket are risk, uh -huh. when the official start date of the project was, your team's readiness these are very practical realities that strike development teams and game studios all the time. Yeah. And very rarely do I see these very key things incorporated into the plan. So you're building new technology for this set of features that you're working on over the next six months. How familiar are your teams today with the tools and technology that they will be using three months from now on a scale mm -hmm. from one to 10? They're like, well, I mean, we're learning all this stuff from scratch. So two, I'm like, well, okay, my opinion would be foolish to not incorporate that reality into your roadmap, right? If you right. think that an engineer or an artist who has a two out of 10 familiarity with the tools and technology they're going to be working with three months from now can give you an accurate hours estimate on all these tasks you're having them estimate, they don't even know what they're estimating. And this, this stuff happens so often. So like you really need to like incorporate, not just, don't just assume that what your projections need to be is a giant bucket of estimated tasks based on whatever somebody says today. Really take a step back and think about all of the major tectonic factors that affect your planning process, right? Uh -huh. I wanna talk about something really, really quick here because we, uh, we had the pleasure of running into uh, a brilliant like statistician and, and like an expert in project planning. His name's Troy McGinnis. And he's an expert in these Monte Carlo simulations, these statistical analytical platforms for like planning just thousands of thousands of different items together and getting these really accurate estimations. And the most interesting part of his presentation for me was when he said the number one reason project plans failed was because no one ever agreed on the official start date of the project. 
Uh-huh. And when I heard that, it was fascinating to me, not least of all, because at that moment, if you asked 30 different people from all throughout the company, when did this project start? You would get 30 different answers. And yep. they were like vastly different answers. Like, oh, this obviously oh, yeah. started in 2015 or no, this started in 2017. And it was crazy. And yep. then I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about that. And I'm like, holy cow, that is actually affecting not just my projections, but the expectations around when this thing was quote unquote supposed to be done. Right. So like these fundamental things are things you need to get people on the same page about and that you need to incorporate into your plan. Like what is the official start date? You can go look up Troy McGinnis. He talks about how to do this inside of the Monte Carlo simulations and he's actually created some helpful stuff that allows you to add some risks in. But basically what you can say is something like, well, what are the odds that we have to redo a bunch of work? And by the way, Often when you're thinking from the monolithic planning perspective, the answer is zero. There is zero chance of that because we don't even know how to, of course, we're going to get it all. And yet when you look at actual development, we're constantly having to redo work. We're constantly have to rebuild engineering systems. We discover something doesn't work. We're throwing, pulling in new features, throwing out old features, a character that we did at first that was our vertical slice art quality bar by the time we get closer to release now looks pretty shabby compared to how far we've taken everything. And so we need to go back and redo that. There's a lot of things that end up being risks that imply that you're going to have to add more work, whatever it might be. There's often someone inside your organization who told you that those were risks, who said, hey, we're thinking we're going to do it this way, but if that doesn't work out, we have to do it this other way and it's going to be a lot more expensive. If you can understand what risk that is and then start putting like numbers behind it, what's the percentage that happens? Well, how much will that impact the plan? What will that do to the roadmap? And so now we have to recognize that, hey, if we reach a point and this switch flips to no, that didn't work, suddenly we have to now shift and the whole plan has to shift with us. That was always a takeaway for me as well, was that like you had these three or four major risks. And again, one of them could be like, well, the team doesn't understand the technology yet. Or this team has never worked together before. Right. These are the things I have my own models for these. You should create your own models for these. And you should ask yourself, what's the difference between a team that has worked together for the last three years and know each other like they're all best friends versus a team that has never been in the same room at the same time prior to now? Right. I would guess that team A is probably at least three times faster than team B. Yeah. And and now there's, you know, other elements of that, like team B will eventually become like team A. Right. So there's other things to think about, but like even you just taking a crack at that and saying 3X is a huge increase in the accuracy of your ability to make projections on a yes. roadmap than not thinking about this stuff at all. Um, and again, you don't need an exhaustive risk registry of 73 different things that are all fully prioritized, but you do need to think about like, where is the team? Where is the project really at today? And how is that likely to change over the next, you know, whatever, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, and incorporate that into your planning process? Because again, I really do believe this. Those are the kinds of things that have a bigger impact on your overall projections than the nickel and diming you're doing around all your task estimates. So we talked about regular updates. 
Then we talked about tracking, incorporating risk, start dates, et cetera, that sort of stuff. This third one is you have to start looking at the discovery rate of work, not just the work that you already knew about. Aaron and I have both been on large projects where when you looked at the original roadmap, there was nothing inherently wrong with it. In, if you looked at it in a very isolated sense, the work had been broken out and people had estimated it and they'd put it all together and they'd created a roadmap. Okay, that's fine. There was so much that wasn't there. We had not planned for finding so much work as we went. Finding work in a world where you're not allowed to do that, people are scared to bring up really important work that we have to do because it doesn't fit anywhere on the schedule. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. Like, well, there's no part of the roadmap that includes that. Uh -huh. That is a travesty. You have some of the hopefully best developers out there, best engineers and artists and designers and all these things. They discover that there's something else they need to do. And now they're trying to fight with the roadmap to put in critical work so that you can achieve the value prop. Instead, you need to acknowledge that the discovery of new work is going to happen and it will impact your overall timeline. This is a crazy one that, I mean, we made this its own separate point, even though you could argue that this is one of the big track and incorporate the impacts of these things, things we just went over in the previous point. This is incredible. I think this is the biggest one that I'm continuously shocked that no one talks about in project planning circles. I mean, I'm sure if you, you know, go to some class or something, they're going to mention it. But like, I don't often hear people running game project plans really talking about actually incorporating the real rate of work discovery or scope discovery into their planning process in a continuous sense, like a regular and continuous sense. And what's funny is like, I was humbled very early on in my career by this problem while making commitments. And I've come to like be in awe and show respect to the scope discovery gods because, <laughs> and, and it's funny because so many of the projects I went and had to like fix started with a whole scope discovery process. So what, what's ironic is like I come in and I do a far more robust exercise where I engage every single person on the team. Tell me what this project entails. Like, let's mm -hmm. empty your heads of everything you're aware of today. And while I'm doing that, I have the most important lesson of all in the back of my head, which is like, this isn't like a third of it. Yeah. Like whatever we come up with is scratching the surface. And so I'm already mentally preparing myself to constantly have that conversation. And one of yep. the stories I love that you tell is seeing teams on large projects killing it on their burndowns. And yet the overall backlog is actually expanding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was um, it was a really solid team and they were doing engineering work primarily. They had done a, a big estimation session after doing some scope discovery. It had taken two full days. They were really excited about it. But the scrum master had, well, he was a developer who was dual hatting and he was a really great guy. He came to me and he said, Ben, we seem to be doing actually better over time in terms of velocity. But when I run the numbers, our total, like our actual finish date is getting further away. So I keep coming back like two weeks, two sprints later or two weeks later, whatever. And I keep going like, wait a minute, why are we even further out? We just did all this work. And 
what was happening is they were adding significantly more work. They were discovering and adding to the backlog. And this was just a one team. This was like a 10 person team, right? I'm not talking about some giant project. This was one 10 person team. They were trying to do something that was somewhat novel and they were discovering more work every week than they were completing. And what you're going to find, by the way, in a lot of projects, and this is this will be some comfort to you, especially at the start, because this can be terrifying. You're going to see more discovery early. You're going to, because everybody's going to be learning. Oh, wait, I didn't realize I had to do that. Oh, I need to talk to that team. Oh, shoot, we need to touch that system. Oh, that means somebody's going to have to do that. And there's all this stuff. You're going to tend to do a lot of discovery early. If you're not, I get suspicious, but might be fine. But generally, yeah, discovery early, a lot of discovery. You might be discovering more work than you're getting done. Don't panic. It doesn't mean your devs are bad or anything. It's part of the process. Then as you get into the the middle part, you're going to start seeing that sort of flatten out and you're going to start seeing, okay, now we're getting as much work done as we're discovering. And then over time, you're going to get to the point where you're getting way more work done and you're not discovering very much. But the discovery is part of game development. Yeah, I want to be very clear too that, you know, Ben and I are encouraging you to back to point number one, really be iterative about your process here, because the the way that Ben just framed beginning, middle, end from a scope discovery point of view is unknowable when you start. Like you won't know when the rate of discovery is going to peak. And that's why you need to keep constant eyeballs on it, right? Like actually a practical real world example we're all dealing right now with is inflation. Right. We've all been talking about inflation. Some of us nerdier than others. If you're actually watching like the Fed statistics coming out and stuff. But like one of the things we didn't know, we knew inflation was bad. We knew it was getting worse. We knew it would eventually peak, but we had no idea when. Right. Right. And I think for a lot of people, the first time they felt like they could really relax about inflation was the moment that we got a number that was slightly lower than last month's. Right. Right. And by the way, last thing I'll say on this idea of the discovery rate. If you have a very high discovery rate, like your discovery rate is consistently completely outdoing the amount of work that your team or teams are getting done, that is a trigger point to do what Aaron talked about. Go do another scope discovery session. Get everybody on the team. I know some people might feel like it's a waste, but actually often what you get is a lot of people on your teams who care about this are going, we're discovering so much work and no one's incorporating the plan and I'm discovering and I don't know what to do. And so when you say, hey, come in and like write it down, I think you said you had 15 whiteboards up with different, Mm -hmm. you know, subsystems of that, of what you were building. And everybody went in and they added whatever they were like, oh, cool, I can add to this, I can add to this, I can add to this. That is so helpful. It gets all those ideas out. And now instead of there being this slow rise and unpredictable rise, you're going to see a big spike and it's actually going to slow your discovery rate somewhat. Uh, it may even kill it for a little bit because, oh, cool, we just, this is all the stuff that we've learned. Now, boom, we have a better roadmap. We have a more accurate roadmap. And you can start doing, making, again, more and more accurate predictions going forward. Yeah. So let's move on to point number four, which is also very related to what we're talking about. And I think another move you could use in the event that your scope discovery rate is higher than you thought it would be for longer than you thought it would be. Prioritization. Yep. Prioritization. Again, back to what Ben and I were talking about earlier about being as flexible around scope as you can possibly be. Part of that is a nod to the idea of prioritizing. You should constantly be using the information that comes out of these exercises you do as a way to prioritize more effectively. Like, I think it's foolish if you assume that a feature is four components and each one of those components is size five, 
And one Mm -hmm. of those components you discover later is actually size 50. Mm -hmm. It would be foolish to not reconsider the priority of component number four or think about ways you can cut out certain things or what's the most important part of component four. Like these conversations need to happen in perpetuity for your plan to maintain its integrity. So use prioritization as the ultimate tool for managing that change. Yeah. Like, because you might freak out. I think, I think, by the way, this is why a lot of leaders don't want to do this kind of like adaptive planning is because they're afraid if they go too far off the beaten path of the narrative that's already been accepted by the company, that there's yep. that they'll back themselves into a corner and they won't be able to do anything about it. But prioritization is your ticket to solving both problems. If you yep. have a fixed state and the work is expanding, there's only one way to solve that problem and it's prioritization. You're going to have to choose what to cut. You're going to have to focus as much as you can on what's important. You're going to have to look for areas to reduce scope. Prioritization is going to be your savior. Yep. And one thing too, that's interesting to ask about here, there's a question reframe that we like using, which is instead of asking, when will it be done? You ask, what can I get by Tuesday? You know, that's the, the colloquial way we say it. That idea of what can we get by Tuesday look at a feature maybe the feature is a little box on your roadmap that goes for like a month and a half you know it's a six-week thing hey here's six weeks that we were going to be working on this and we discover that all of our stuff is slowly shifting to the right in a pretty unpleasant and awkward and oh no this is very uncomfortable what are we going to do well ask the team hey if we didn't have, I know we thought this was going to take six weeks and because everything's taking longer than we thought, it's actually probably going to now take longer than six weeks. For this feature, what's a lighter weight version of it? I think a lot of times when people think cutting scope, they default to a place of, well, I have to cut entire feature sets or like none of this content. We have to delete these levels or whatever it is. Maybe, and that might be the right call for your game, your experience, the value you're trying to achieve. Don't shy away from that if that's the case. Sometimes you can also look at it through the lens of how do I narrow what's in there? How do I take what was going to take six weeks, which is really going to take 10 and say, what could we do in three? Yeah. If your VFX is the heaviest part Mm -hmm. of your, the delivery of each increment, like if that's seven out of 10 effort points that goes into each thing you deliver, maybe it's worth considering lowering or lightening the VFX burden. Yeah. Yeah. And that could be as simple as we're just not going to do as much as we had originally planned to. By the way, one of the cool things too about this, if you do that really well and you get to the point where the value of the game has actually been achieved, even though you only did three units of VFX for every 10 you wanted to do as an example. Now, if you're ahead of schedule, which you may be, if you really cut scope well, you can look at that and go, oh my gosh, where do we want to put polish time? What are the most important VFX to put more effort into? And every discipline can do this in their own way. And so don't think about this as like when I say cut scope, ah, oh, no, but I, all these features are needed. I kn- sure, maybe so. Maybe for your experience, all those features are needed. I hope you're validating that with play tests and other things. But if they are, how can you thin them? How can you narrow them? Something you like to say is you cut them to the bone. It, it should feel painful if you're the person making those sorts of product calls, whether you're a designer or a producer or whatever. It should feel painful realizing, ah, we don't get to do everything we wanted to do, but this is the most important part. When you're at that point, now you're actually thinking about, okay, this is what must be here. Uh-huh. And so when you're thinking about prioritization, keep that in mind as well. You don't just have to cut whole things. 
It may be about thinning the things you already have. Yep. And I, I'm always, no matter what a team's stated problem is when they come to us, one of the first things we will tend to focus on if we surface information that leads us to this place is who is actively prioritizing and how does that process work? Because again, that is going to be the ultimate ace up your sleeve when inevitably you run into situations where you need to solve these problems. All of these things that happen during development and project planning. And often we find that teams have somebody maybe setting a vision and somebody maybe like pushing tasks around or managing the work. But who's the person actually going in and saying, this is the most valuable thing we could deliver? Like, if you have a running play test, like what's the next thing we need to see running in the play test to see if it's great or not? Or we just found out this thing was great in a play test. We're really, we're going to build this out all the way and we're going to forget about these five things. Like that function is the most valuable yeah. function on your team because every decision, every micro decision that is made during that process of prioritization saves your team a ton of effort and pain downstream. Yes. There's one other thing I kind of want to, I'm just going to punch the monolithic planning process in the face again, because often when we go into companies and we ask about that, hey, what's your vision? Who's doing prioritization of what matters most to the experience you're trying to create for your players through your game? The answer we get is nobody, or I don't know. And what's actually happened is the monolithic plan has become the mechanism for prioritization. Look, the plan we did, the giant plan we did at the beginning has laid out what needs to be done in what order. One of the problems with this is that when you have that monolithic plan, you often order things in terms of how you would construct them, uh -huh. not in terms of how they are valuable to the experience. That, again, is a mistake of that planning process. That is sequencing, not prioritizing. Exactly. And so what that means is that we're going to the monolithic plan for prioritization, but actually we might be halfway through it and have none of the value because all we've been doing is doing the first things in the sequence across a million areas instead of getting one thing to the point of value then another thing to the point of value. There's going to be a blend of these things like games need to have some, some stuff built underneath them to function. But broadly speaking, you want that prioritization from beginning to end. It shouldn't be a panic button you press at the last minute when you realize, oh my goodness, the plan has totally failed us. The plan was always going to totally fail you. Expect it, prioritize from the start. Yep. And then our final point, number five, as we wrap up the, the five points here is understanding that actively managing the expectations of the people you're accountable to as the team lead is like 50% of the battle here. So it's like, it's great to have good estimates. It's great to have a really robust roadmap. It's great, you know, if you've got all of your sort of ducks in a row as far as the actual process you're using. At the end of the day, if your stakeholders are pissed and they already feel like you're late, it doesn't matter how good your data is. You need to uh -huh. work through that. And one of the things I want to encourage you to do if you run into a situation that's like that where there isn't trust or there is cynicism around like whether you guys can actually deliver on time, even though you've, you've really done your diligence. That's when you need to take a step back and not lean so much into the data. And you need to lean into your decision-making process 
and lift the hood up for your stakeholders, not so far that you're literally pointing out every single component to them and burying them in the details. That's your job. But help them understand why you're approaching things the way you are and the decisions you're making so that they can involve themselves and you can start to rebuild trust. Because at the end of the day, I've never seen a plan solve a trust issue with stakeholders. And what sucks about that is when I see a team that knows what they're capable of, a leader that's built a great plan and stakeholders that are still like, make it half, like make it faster. I don't trust you. It shouldn't take that long. It shouldn't be this. Like that, your job as a leader is not just to create the plan and just keep showing it. Your job is also to manage, actively manage expectations around what that plan is, why that plan is there, what it means, and to provide options for your stakeholders if they don't like what they're seeing. Give them options. Say, hey, well, we could cut this. Or, hey, if we could get more resources, we could give them options. Yeah. Tell them which option you think is the best, but yep. give them options. Try to make it as easy as possible for them to help you solve the problem. Yeah, I love it because if you, you know, we were talking earlier, if VFX is your bottleneck, hey, if you can reflect, VFX is our bottleneck. Right now we're having to cut scope on a lot of things and we're still likely to slip the deadline. So we're, we're working hard to resolve that. We're going to do everything we can. If we can get an additional VFX artist, on the team, it could really help us. It'll take us some time to get him spun up, but we're far enough out from deadline right now that, you know, even if we have to spin them up for a month, they're going to be adding value more than uh, slowing us down for most of this project. And uh, so there's other things we've talked about managing expectations earlier. I want to talk too, when you don't do this well, that time where you went and you had your 15 whiteboards, there was a fellow leader with you on the team. And because the expectations were so messed up and the incentives that had been created between stakeholders and that team were so broken, I think you said that he almost viewed it as an attack when you did proper scope mm-hmm. discovery. Yeah, it couldn't possibly be this much. And uh, I think that there was a feeling that that exercise was a distraction and actually almost kind of creating a sky is falling. I mean, I, I didn't characterize the scope discovery exercise is a bad thing. I was like, this is just great, important, valuable things that teams should do. We should come up together and talk about the work. And part of that was that it had become evident really quickly as I had spoken to people on the team that no one had ever really asked them what the scope was. They had been, somebody had come to them to solicit estimates. Right. Like, how much is this thing? How much is that thing? How much is this thing? But no one had ever sat down and said, hey, we're talking about building a system that looks like this. What does that entail? Like no one had ever asked them that. It was all assumed in the design document. So I felt that that was a critical part of the planning process because I believe in my bones that the team needs to be engaged, not just because it's some kumbaya thing. Like the idea that like one or two people can go into a dark room somewhere and scope a like year plus long project that is like a massive distributed system. Give me a break. Like, I've never seen that done well. Like, I want to know what the people working on it think. What's missing? What have you learned? Like, and so, yes, you're right. When when I did that, I think it was was clear that the the scope was expanding so rapidly, so quickly that it was intimidating. Yes. I think for that that leader. And it was really scary because, you know, again, I I think he, he couched it at the time as like, why are you doing this? You're causing problems on the team. But I think 
what in reality was happening, it, looking back was, oh God, how am I going to possibly explain this? Right. You know, a lot of it was like sitting down with him and, and working with him and helping him understand that this might be painful right now, but past three months, this is going to save us. This is going to be the thing that saved us. And that also, that conversation that he was so scared of having was a reckoning that was coming. Yes. Whether we wanted to admit it or not. Right. Like the stakeholders were either going to find out now and be pissed or find out eight months from now and be really pissed. So it's like, pick your pick your poison. Yeah. There was no yeah. avoiding it. You know what I mean? It was obvious where the train was going as soon as those exercises commenced. So There's something else, and I'll just throw it in real quick. There's this idea that's been throughout our conversation. If your team can't get behind the roadmap that you've created, whether that's a five-person team, a 50-person team, a 200-person studio, if they can't get behind the roadmap, odds are they're right. And whoever's thinking that thing is totally accurate is wrong. Now, maybe there's information that need, well, there's certainly information that needs to be exchanged. That would be something for me that is a trigger point to, okay, what's going on? And I think that was always true for you. I was on a project once where yeah. they had these milestones laid out and they had all this work that they were supposed to do in the milestones. And I showed up and I was in charge of the large majority of the, the whole development team. And I realized that nobody in my space cared that much about the milestone or was that invested or involved in getting it done. They knew we were going to fail the milestone. They'd failed all the milestones. That's okay. They were just trying to do the right work in the right order. Part of me respects them for saying, what's the right work and what's the right order to do it in? But the reality that they had to reject the milestone and just operate in sort of a quasi world where they kind of pretended it mattered, but didn't really know what it was about. The milestone you could argue was essentially like declaring a roadmap. By this time, we'll have all these things done. By this time, we'll have all these things done. There was this milestone plan that was laid out. They didn't care. Yeah. When your team doesn't care about the roadmap or the milestone plan or whatever, you should take notice because it should actually be exciting to them as we go through that stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, specifically for all my producers out there, um, this is something you really need to take seriously because I think in amongst many developers and contributors in our industry, production is not looked upon with a lot of favor. I think it's safe to say a lot of developers in the games industry are cynical about some aspects of production. And I think I have seen many situations where teams look at planning and roadmapping and estimation and stuff is like, oh, this is the thing that the producer really needs. So we got to help them out with that. But if they feel like that today, that means that the work you're doing is not providing value to them. Yeah. And that's a problem because they should feel like that work you're doing helps them make better decisions. And they should feel like that work you're doing provides great advocacy for them to the rest of the company. Yes. That's what you're looking for. And so if all they're feeling is cynicism about your plan, like, I mean, I've, I've been there before. I've had developers walk by my roadmap popping up on a monitor in the work area and be like, oh, that's bullshit. We're never going to ship on time for that. And pulled them aside and be like, walk me through that. Right. Talk me through that. Like, point out the parts that you think are the most wrong. So yeah. this is the active work you need to do. Once It's not a one and done. It's an everyday thing. And you're like, I love what you said, Ben, about the team and their view toward it being the heartbeat of the value of it. 
let's just do a quick review. So again, these five points here in thinking about roadmapping and planning and how to make it effective at your organization. One, build regular updates and iteration into your roadmapping approach so that the plan stays relevant as things change. Number two, track and incorporate the impact of risk, start dates, and ideal team readiness on your projections and communicate them early on. Three, the discovery rate is key and must be a staple in your planning process. Four, use prioritization as the ultimate tool for managing change. Great prioritization can get you out of a tough bind. Five, actively manage expectations of the people you're accountable to. This is at least 50% of the planning battle. So if you do those things, we think you're gonna have a better time with road mapping, a better time with planning overall. Your developers are gonna have a better time. We really encourage this. Be wary of the monolithic plan. If you enjoyed this content, sign up for our newsletter. Every two weeks, we'll deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game. Check out the show notes for the link, buildingbettergames.gg forward slash newsletter. 